relationships are everything. So without the relationships that I have with my brands, there wouldn't be a business. And so investing time in building those early on was really, really valuable. And through COVID, being able to help them and support them and nurture those relationships was the best thing that I did. Hey guys, welcome back to The Bag Self Show. This week, I'm super excited to have on Rebecca Saunders. She is the CEO and founder of Psychology. I'm gonna let her tell us straight away about what she does. So tell me about Psychology and what does it do? Hi Tom, great to meet you. So Psychology is a destination where you can discover independent beauty and wellbeing brands. We launched in November, 2019, and we've worked with over 80 brands during that time. Wow, wow. So, um coming cutting straight to it probably been a pretty good time for you i imagine like has it been all right for you over the past year because i imagine a lot of people are getting into doing like you know the the independent gigs where they've you know they've lost their jobs they've moved away from the corporate area they might be furloughed they've got a bit more spare time and so people's been starting to dig in and start building their own businesses has that been really good for you it's been a real roller coaster, i would say um on the brand side yes it's been quite exciting because as you say there are lots of people that are kind of starting their side hustles or turning their side hustles into full-time jobs. We've got a candle brand that's one of our bestsellers that only really started during the times of COVID. Um, but at the same time, it's also been really challenging because part of what I really want to do with Psychology is create these amazing in-store physical experiences, which would be the linchpin behind our brand. And obviously we've been really limited in terms of how we can do that. So lots of highlights, but also lots of challenges over the last year or two. Yeah, amazing. So I'm going to go, I'm going to dig straight in here. Okay, so there's people listening to this who, uh, a lot of people have had ideas about creating wellness and beauty brands and so forth as, as a side hustle. But that transition of turning a side hustle into a hustle is a big step, okay? So how do we, what you've, you, I mean, your background, for people who don't know, like you you worked at Not On The High Street, you worked at John Lewis, you have the most exemplary CV on LinkedIn I've ever seen. It's great. And so when you, what is your first, what are your, your sort of, how do people go from that side hustle to hustle? How do they make that transition? Well, there are a few different routes, really. Um, some people very much start as the side hustle and they use their, their day jobs or they freelance to get the funding to be able to start something off. Um, we've got other brands that actually just hit the ground running because they've really nailed a sweet spot in terms of what consumers are looking at. And we've definitely seen that, as I said, with candles this year. And, and then thirdly, we've got some brands where they've got maybe several founders. So it's still a side hustle, but by several people coming together, they're able to, um, to kind of each put in, bring their skills to the table, bring their money to the table um, and, and create something. And then we're starting to see some of our brands actually just taking the plunge. So people who maybe had corporate jobs and are realizing that that's not the be all and end all for them and really just wanting to go for it and become an entrepreneur. Yeah, I like that. And I can, I can tell you, well, we've both done that. So, you know, I get that, that bug. So if you're, okay, so getting a bit more into the weeds here. Someone's created a candle. Okay, I've created a, a, a candle with a particular scent that i think there's missing in the market yep um a single something like cheerios i love the smell of cheerios yep <laughs> so cheerio flavored candle okay so if so you take something like that like what for, for me as um as a founder i instantly look at this and think the product isn't as much of a problem 
as the distribution. Because I imagine the candle market is unbelievably competitive because the barriers to entry are quite low. Okay, so how do you, how do these businesses and these brands, how do they, and obviously because you're an expert in this and you, you help them do this, how do they differentiate themselves and build that distribution network? How do they make themselves grow? Sure, so well, my background is, um, among other things, in retail buying. So I used to be the, the beauty buyer for John Lewis. Um, and I was approached all the time by independent brands at that point, and it was really difficult for us to work with them um, for various reasons. And it's actually now the case that some of the brands that I work with don't necessarily want to go down that department store route, uh, not least because for a lot of the department stores don't exist anymore. Um, but also, that? <laughs> um, I think many of them start off, they think, well, we're going to be a D2C brand. We've seen, you know, that's where the money is. That's where the growth is. We're going to sell D2C. And then they, so they create this amazing Cheerio candle or other product and, and start selling it. And often they hit a bit of a plateau. So they might have a great product. They might have great packaging, they might have a reasonably engaged social media audience, but they start to find that the economics of selling D2C are maybe a little bit more challenging than they expected. They don't really want to pour too much money into Facebook and Google. Um, they don't necessarily have the capacity to do PR. And so they start thinking about other channels of distribution. And where I see Psychology coming in is a, a new part of the ecosystem that really champions those independent brands and gets them to the next stage. And well over half of the brands that I work with have never been in physical retail before. So there are actually quite a lot of practical things that I can help them with, um, whether that's from barcodes and packaging um, to what should their pricing really be to accommodate a, a retail markup um, and therefore can help them understand what that landscape looks like. And it may be for some of our brands that they sell direct and they sell via psychology and that's that's enough for them. And it may be for others that psychology is a bit of a stepping stone and they can use what they've learned with us to then go and approach other retailers with some more proof points around their sales and their performance that will help them get their foot through the door. I love that. So what was the, when you created psychology, um, what was the problem that you saw in the world that you thought needed to be solved by creating it? So... As a two-sided marketplace, I'd say there's two problems. There's a problem for brands that they've discovered they want this distribution. They don't necessarily want to go into the incumbent retailers because those retailers are often less flexible. They're often not very fast moving. And, and often they, the brands don't get the feedback that they would want from those retailers. Plus, of course, a big wholesale margin. Um, and on the consumer side, uh, I felt as a consumer that a lot of retailers looked the same you went in you always saw the same old brands and when it comes to beauty and well-being there is actually so much innovation in the market there are wonderful new products new brands coming through all of the time that as a consumer i wanted to go and seek those out and that's actually where the name psychology comes from sick name um, but it, it was something about creating this more experiential retail where I could bring the stories of these brands to life um, and, and really encourage people to keep coming back into the physical store and more recently back onto our online channels as well um, to tell the stories of those brands and, and really help customers understand why they might want to buy them. I love that. And I love you. Um, every good brand starts with a good story. Have you got any uh, hot ones you want to share? Oh, gosh. Well, since you'd mentioned the word hot and we're recording on the hottest day of the year so far, um, <laughs> one of the brands that I really love is a brand called Salty, which is a sun care brand. 
And this was created because actually quite often some of the chemicals that are used in, in sun cream are not very good for the environment. They actually damage coral and they damage marine life. And so when you wear them, particularly in the sea, that washes off your body and it starts to damage our coral reefs. Which I did not know that. Wow. So Salty have created an amazing range, full products at the moment of, of sun care, um, which is absolutely amazing. Smells. How do you, how do you, how do you spell Salty? S-A-L-T-E-E. And then also during um, COVID, they launched a hand sanitizer, which obviously meets all of the requirements in terms of alcohol content and it's, it really works, but at the same time, it smells nice and it doesn't dry your hands out. So right. that's another one of my favorite products. So that's, I think, a great example of the kind of brand that we love to work with, where they're agile, they're moving quickly, they're launching products, but they have a real mission behind them as well. Well, I'm looking for a daily moisturizer that has SPF 50. So if you, anyone who's listening, if you could make that, I'm a customer. Um, you know, I hate the fact that I have to put on sun cream on top of my moisturizer. Something very manly here. Um, but yeah, that's well, true. I, ha I have a product that can help you with that, actually. Oh, well, there we go. Well, let's, uh, you can recommend it. It's called Enhance and Protect. And it's by a brand called CJ Skin Health. I'll, I'll send you a link. Oh, well, thank you. I'll put it in the notes. Great. Okay. So you take these brands. So you, you saw this, there's this two-sided problem. Now, I imagine this is a pretty tough gig because you, as a marketplace, a marketplace model is always very hard to build because, you know, you have to obviously find the customers for these people. And at the same time, you need to find the brands and the products as well. So how do you, and critical mass is quite a big issue always with any marketplace model. So I'm, you're not going to be different to everyone else and you're going to, you would have gone through that. So how did you get through that process? What was your starting point and what have you learned from it? What mistakes did you make? What was your starting point? Did you say, I'm going to go and find the brands first or did you go and find the audience first? What did you, how did you do it? I did do a simultaneous track for both because I think okay. that's really important, but I accelerated the brand side because really if you've got nothing to sell, there's not that much point in having a whole load of customers coming to you. Um, and so as I was scoping out the business, I actually spoke to 50 brands. How did you find those 50 brands? Well, I come from the industry. Right. Okay. I, I knew some brand founders already and I knew a lot of people who knew brand founders. So I put the feelers out within my network and I said, look, I'm thinking of launching this business. Do you know any brands that might be interested? Um, and so probably about 20, of, 20 or 25 of the brands came that way. And then I went out scouting to look for brands that I thought were interesting, that had great stories um, using things like Instagram. Um, and after a little while, even during that period, some of the brands that I was talking to said, oh, well, you should speak to my friend so-and-so because she runs this brand. So why don't you talk to her as well? And so actually the word of mouth among the brands started very quickly um, about what I was launching. And, and that really reinforced that there was this huge demand from the brands to come and participate in something like Psychology. Um, on the customer side, I first of all built um, the social media following. And then I had picked Richmond as the location for the first store, not just because I live nearby, but also because I was looking at a particular demographic. Um, so I built a very clear picture of who my customer was. Um, and actually my customer does not always shop in central London because she is potentially 30 or 35 plus. She maybe lives in one of the suburbs of London or a market town um, just outside London. So you probably know lots of these people as well. Um, and so she's looking for something that is in, in her community. And, and so I started to build local relationships as well. I'm quite active in our local business community within Richmond. 
um, and doing local advertising. So everything from um, locally targeted Facebook advertising to um, more kind of traditional old school methods like outdoor magazines um, and jumping on things like Facebook groups or Nextdoor, um, just really trying to build that word of mouth for the shop as well. Nice. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, so you're a hybrid model, right? So you can buy online as well as um, in the store. Yeah, so that's a, that's a tough gig to try and get that right. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So tell me about the business. So what are your, I'm assuming it's going incredibly well. Okay, so I'm going to make that assumption. You obviously know what you're doing. What's what's the plan? Is it to is it to go national and then? But does that mean you've got the risk of becoming just the same as another brand where you have the same stuff in every store, or is it going to be the case where every time, rather uniquely, every time you go to a new location, you have local providers and local suppliers? Is that the plan? Yes, it's a bit of a hybrid of the two. So I've obviously got all the processes now to be able to launch a new store, and I can do that very quickly. Um, so I launched a store, a pop-up on Oxford Street in about three weeks, which took place in May. Wow. Um, and because I have this portfolio of 80 brands, which are spread across the country, I can cherry pick from a geographic perspective, or nice. I can also cherry pick from some kind of positioning perspective. So if I decided I wanted to do a store that was just about vegan beauty, for example, I could draw on just those brands. Or if I decided to do something that was much more wellness focused, I could I could focus on just those brands. Um, so what I'm looking to do going forward will be a combination of permanent or semi-permanent stores with pop-ups, which I think then that time being a bit more time critical builds that excitement. It gives people a reason to go, um, and continuing that experiential retail. And the longer term goal would be, yes, to have psychology stores across the country and in every market town, in every large city. But each of those, I think, would have a flavor of the local environment and would focus on some local brands too. I love that. I think that's awesome. I think it really is. Um, okay, I'm going to dig into a few things you said there and ask you some specific questions. So you very casually said, I just grew my social media. Okay. It's just as if it was a throwaway comment, but everyone knows it's really hard. Okay. But it's obviously a big part of this this particular industry particularly if you are a brand and anyone who's obviously they've all tried to do it and they've um, and i imagine every single one of your brands has a social media following and an entity on there so what do you see as a consistently bad thing that people are doing there or a consistently good thing that people are doing there which is leading to success i think having a real clear view of who your customer is is, is so important and i suppose having grown up in the retail industry, that's what I always come back to. Who's your customer? Who are you talking to? Is your tone of voice right? And I do see inconsistencies sometimes, particularly when people outsource their social media. I think often it's hard to get that, that tone of voice right. And I know that my customer is, she's not 22. And so I can't talk to her as if she's Gen Z. I have to talk to her in a more mature way and be sympathetic to her needs. Um, and that has to really hang through the whole thread of every type of communication I do, whether that is social media or whether it's my emails or what the website looks like. And then finally, that experience that, that she has if she comes into the store as well. 
So I think that consistency is probably the hardest thing to get right, because as you grow as a brand, obviously you have to start outsourcing some of these things. You can't be in all places all the time. Um, and also making sure that you're on the right social media and, and going for quality rather than quantity. Um, and actually, for me, that's more about Facebook than it would be around Instagram. Um, and also something like LinkedIn, which uh, there are lots of things that I'm not so keen on about LinkedIn, as I'm sure many of us find. But actually, my customer is on LinkedIn because she's a professional woman. Um, and so I get amazing engagement on LinkedIn, which I would never have expected and still, until I just started posting about it from a business perspective. Amazing. So many people forget about the fact that you can sell products directly on LinkedIn. You know, like if you you had like, it always amazes me that people like TM Lewin or um, Halls and Curtis don't advertise on LinkedIn because you're like, dude, all your customers are here. Like, why aren't you doing that? Why are you going? Yeah, they're mad. Obviously, no one buys suits anymore. I think that whole industry is dead. But um, it's uh, but still, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's a really good good tip there. So you've obviously so now things are changing. People are starting to go back into shops, and so people are starting to shop again. Okay. So give me your prediction. Do you think that like for these types of products is retail like viable or is it going to have to be like 90% online, 10% retail or in person? I think it is. Retail is absolutely viable. There are a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that people don't make linear shopping journeys anymore. They don't just shop online or just shop offline. So I know that I've got customers that maybe discovered us on Instagram, but they're local. So then they come into the shop and they look at something and then they might buy in the shop, but they might actually buy online. And that's fine. It's harder to track, obviously, um, but it's it's a really important part of that journey. And that is why you often see some of the struggling retailers closing stores and their business starts to implode. I think also we're going to see some categories bounce back more quickly in physical stores than others. So beauty actually, historically about 90% of beauty sales were taking place in physical stores. So for all that you hear about the wonderful businesses that are online only in beauty, they were still actually a relatively small part of the market because what you find is in beauty, people want to smell the product, they want to touch it, they want to put it on their skin and see how it feels. And with all the best technology in the world, it's still really difficult to replicate that experience online. And it's fun. It's fun going into a shop and smelling things and, and, yeah. things and also having a conversation with somebody. So particularly when it comes to something like skincare, um, as you mature, your skincare needs change. And many people would actually rather have a real conversation with somebody who can see face to face what their needs are going to be and then select the right product for them. And that impartial advice is something that I really pride ourselves on because it's actually quite difficult to get that elsewhere. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. I totally agree with that. I didn't realize that only 10% is uh, is online. That was pre-COVID. So it will be interesting to right. see where it settles, but it may be, I would guess it would be probably under 20% still. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of pent upper buying, you know, so I spanked all my money as soon as the shops opened. I didn't even know what I bought. You know, just needed to get it out. Um, okay. So let's talk about you as a founder. So you... Um, you spent a lot of time um, in big corporates, in great in great businesses. What gave you the courage to go and do it on your own? I'd always felt like I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And if I look back at some of the things I did as a child, I was always making little shops or 
creating magazines and selling them to people or nice. um, creating a museum of all the things that I picked up on my holidays and charging my family to come and look at my museum. So I but I love that. Yeah. <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit was always there, but I always felt like I didn't have the right idea. And so I wasn't ready and I didn't want to just go and live somebody else's dream. So I followed my nose into the city, which wasn't right for me. And then I followed my nose more successfully into retail, which was right for me and really loved the retail industry. Um, worked for John Lewis. I also worked in the States for J. Crew and for Tiffany. And then Mills on the High Street was the first digitally focused business that I'd worked in. And it was obviously a lot smaller than John Lewis and it felt, felt small at the time. Um, although it was relatively mature by that stage. Um, this was about five years ago. Um, and just loved working in that world, loved working with the small businesses and started to think, well, actually, are there categories where the online marketplace model doesn't quite work? Um, and combining that with the knowledge I had from my time at John Lewis around beauty started really fleshing out this idea. Yeah, I can totally see that. And so when you do, so you're, uh, you're a solo founder? Yep, solo female founder. You're in the minority there. Yep, um, so that's great. Uh, not enough female founders. Um, what did you find particularly hard when you first went out? Did you go and raise money? Were you self-funded? What did you? What was? How did you start out? So I started out funding myself through some freelance work that I was doing. Oh, smart. So when I I left not on the high street, actually, when I had kids, and went freelance, and I had some some fantastic clients, some bigger clients like um, Fennec and Scribbler in the retail space, and then I worked with quite a lot of startup brands as well. Um, which really just kind of egged me on because I kept thinking, well, if they can do it, then why can't I? Yeah, of course. Great. That was great. So while I was scoping the idea, I was I was able to kind of fund myself. And then when I was ready and I had a business plan and I had a pitch deck and I'd spent probably six months or so really working on that and going to every single possible startup founder event I could find in London. Um, then I went out and I raised a little bit of money, um, SEIS money from some angels, um, and put some more of my own money in as well. Nice. Nice. Should have come and seen me. This sounds exactly the kind of thing I'd invest in. Gutted. Um, okay. Okay, great. So you went out and you went and it's look, I mentioned that was a tough sell, like, you know, saying you're going to do a hybrid online and retail, you know, an in-person business. That must've been a tough, a tough sell. What was your, through that fundraising experience, what was the, what was kind of the key learning that you took away from it? What would you do differently this time around if you did it again? I think I'd be more, more confident and more thick skinned about it. And obviously pretty much everybody who goes through a fundraising journey, hears a lot of no's and that's okay. And also not necessarily, if somebody's saying no and they give you some feedback, that's great. But just park that feedback and, and come back to it when you're feeling less emotional and think about whether it's useful or not. Because actually, a lot of the feedback that I received was very much conflicting as well. Um, so some people said, oh, you should do it just you should do it just online. You shouldn't do anything offline. And some people actually said, well, if you're really going long on physical retail, then don't bother about the website. Um, and so you can start to tie yourselves in knots if you if you really try and listen to what everybody's saying. So cutting through that noise, I think would be something that I, I would have maybe tried to do a little bit quicker. Um, and also running it more as a process, which I had no idea about, but actually putting some timescales on it. Um, not necessarily trying to force anybody's hand, but I think when you, when you get to the end of that fundraising process, you think, actually, I could have wrapped some of this up more quickly. And as a solo founder, every 
minute that you're spending on fundraising is a minute that you're not spending on the business. So that's really important in terms of managing your time. Yeah, it's, I could agree more with that. The thing about rejection, and I say this to every startup I, I ever worked to or speak to, is like, it's not about you. Yeah, that's it, you're such a minor part of the reason they'll say no. It's because you don't fit. It might not be the right time. That you know, you may not be the scale they want. There can be so many things, and it doesn't mean you've got a bad business. It just means you're not right for that investor. Don't worry about it. Also, as someone who invests, like you know, you might see ten pitches that week. Yeah, and there might be one that just really fits for you, and you just happen to be the one that doesn't quite fit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you've got a bad business. They're going to work out, and you just got to keep going. Don't take it personally. And the thing of your advice and feedback is great. Don't take look at feedback when you're miserable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just because someone said to you, just because an investor said you should go down this route, doesn't mean they're right. Yeah. If they were particularly good at this, they'd probably be doing themselves anyway, rather than just writing checks. Okay, so uh, yeah, I always think, yeah, I think that's really good, really good advice. And the process thing, like, damn, it is a time-consuming gig raising money. It's just, it's the, it is weirdly like it can be a real startup killer because your CEO spends all their time raising money and not enough time growing the business. So yeah, like, really good advice there on putting that together. So I got one more question for you. Um, now. Solo founders, like you have to be unbelievably productive, okay? Um, because you've got no one else to depend on, right? You've got to do so many things to help so many people out. So you must be an absolutely yeah, productivity wizard. So you must have some tips and some advice on how you smash it compared to other people. Oh, gosh. Well, I've always liked being busy. So I'm one of those people that if you give me more to do, I'll get much more done. I've always been like that. And... I enjoy the variety of being a founder and that flexibility that one minute you're working on fundraising, the next minute you're working on marketing, the next minute you're working on operations. And actually that really makes me tick, even though it's it's slightly kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Um, but I enjoy that. I get a real buzz out of it. So I think, first of all, you've got to be that kind of personality that enjoys that feeling um, that you're trying to do too many things at once and, and you know, you're kind of wondering how on earth you're going to get everything done, but somehow you do. Um, I can't remember the rest of the question. That's fine. That's good. That's enough. That's enough. I'll take that. And final one, what is your best learning that you've taken from this uh, first 18 months of smashing it with your startup? Relationships are everything. So without the relationships that I have with my brands, um, there wouldn't be a business. And so investing time in building those early on was really, really valuable. And through COVID, when our online business was quite nascent and we didn't have a shop, actually being able to help them and support them and nurture those relationships was the best thing that I did um, in terms of helping them on a continual basis and, and driving that loyalty. And the same thing with your customers. You know, Build relationships with your customers. That can even be individual relationships. I send Christmas cards to our best customers. I sent them a present. I, um, I, kinda, I know who they are. I know their names. I recognize it. When they send when they place an order um and actually having those personal relationships i think is so important and it extends far beyond that as well not just just customers and suppliers but all the way through building those relationships you never know when somebody might be helpful to you so see how you can help them now pay it forward um and hopefully good things will happen i love that that's a really great piece well look thanks so much Rebecca. this has been amazing so much great advice thank you so much for, for coming on the show thank you 